You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. This is John Spirosavet. If you're listening right as we are releasing episodes, or if it just happens to be the corresponding week in a future year, we're sharing again a previous conversation that pairs so perfectly with Yom Kippur, the Jewish holy day known as the Day of Atonement, which is coming this week. We've got brand new episodes coming soon, including our first ever Good Place Insider Talk with show editor Eric Kissack. So make sure you're subscribed. If you're sticking around now, enjoy Chapter 23, Yom Kippur Should Be a Dance Party. Hey, it's John Spirosavet and Rebecca Rosenthal. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. It's great to be back. This is your first time back in season two, and it's uh, so far along. And um, actually, it seems sort of appropriate with an episode called Best Self to ask you this question, uh, your first time back in this season, whether you would say anything differently about which of the main characters you are identifying with. Do you remember who you were back in season one at the beginning? Honestly, I don't. Do you? Did you write it down? Well, I only I, I didn't remember, but I went back to, to listen. You said you were a more of a Michael who wished you could be a little more like an Eleanor. Yeah, I, I, I think I still stand by that assessment of the situation. I'm definitely don't think I'm really a Tahani or a Jason or even a Chidi. I know a <laughs> lot of rabbis have said that they're Chidis, but I don't think that's who I am. Yeah, when we do, we'll do an end of the season tally, and I think the cheaties are ahead, but only really by a nose. And then I have to do some calculation if I take myself out, and I'm not doing a weighted average by number of <laughs> number of co-hosting appearances. So <laughs> I only get one, I only weigh for one. So anyway, so for any of you keeping tabs and on a, a betting pool, Rebecca is still a Michael with with a yearn for a little more Eleanor. <laughs> So we are talking about Chapter 23, Best Self. You want to give us a summary, Rebecca? Sure. And, you know, I think this is one of those episodes that I kind of forgot about. And then when I went back and watched it, I thought to myself, I love this episode so much. So I'm very excited to talk about it. That's so good. I want to. I want to. Yeah, because I actually I had like two opposite reactions. So this will be great. While Sean and the demons are off looking for the humans at Mindy St. Clair's, Michael has Janet build the special balloon to get to the good place, which only accepts people who have become their best selves. Chidi fails the first attempt to get on, and in the ensuing deliberation, Michael confesses that the balloon is fake. Michael says there's no way to get to the good place without having been good on Earth, but he hoped to buy time to figure out something because he has come to care about them and has learned to feel bad about lying to them. And he says he tried literally one billion options to get them to the good place. I liked that part. The whole group throws themselves a final party where Tahani breaks up with Jason, saying it's time to stop relying on others for her happiness. And Eleanor and Chidi discuss their feelings for each other. The humans discuss what each person's personal bad place might be like, and they declare Michael an honorary human, presenting him with a gift basket of useless items. Together, they all decide they will try the last chance they have, a probably futile attempt to go through the Bad Place headquarters and reach the portal that leads to the judge. So you love this episode. I feel like I often get these episodes that don't move the plot along that much until the very last second when, bam, a lot happens. But I just, I really loved this episode because I felt like it was so introspective and 
it gave the characters a lot of chances to think about themselves and it moved a lot of the relationships forward. Jason and Tahani, obviously, but also Eleanor and Judy, Michael with the group, Janet with the group. It gave, it just had a lot of chances and I felt it was so Jewish. And actually when you started asking me about texts, I thought, well, there's so many obvious texts one could bring about this, about, you know, weighing your good deeds versus your bad deeds and which one will come out on top, which is from the Talmud and then also from Rambam. So there was a lot of obvious texts um, that came up here, but I just, I really appreciated all of the conversation that happened. And I thought there were some very funny moments also. Yeah, you know, I, I have to agree with you. Initially, I thought, probably if this was like one of the first episodes I was watching, I'd be, you know, sappy. And I am I am huge for sappy, generally. And so I have to like have a I have like a sap corrector, I have to apply to myself. <laughs> and and some of the music even in the background, I think just leaned right into the sappy, gooey, sweet, sweet is good, I guess sappy, maybe uh, people around me say that I'm I'm too much a sucker that I cry for too many things and I've had I've had some tears the last few episodes in particular moments even knowing what's coming and uh, and then I thought oh was there really anything new in this episode because it was a lot of hashing the same dimensions but I totally agree with you the conversations washed out a lot of reflections even on familiar things about the the characters and I thought also that it had some really great reflections on. What does it mean to be to be human that, you know, Michael says we only need two emotions, anger and confusion. <laughs> and Eleanor's like, no. And then she's like, wait, actually, you might be right later on. And, and Chidi says, you know, when Chidi says to Michael, you made a mistake and then you admitted you were wrong, which is better than 90 percent of humans. And I thought that that was a very important line in thinking about, like, what does it actually mean to be human and what does it mean to be a good a good human, the ability to sort of reflect on what you've done and, and apologize and try to move on, which is, of course, Rambam's definition of, of tshuva, of repentance. Yeah, I was. I, I made this list of kind of each person's little insight. I'm not sure you could say that Jason had an insight, maybe, but but every and not even person, but even Michael as a actually even Janet had this reflection. Like I'm getting better because my operating system is continually updating, <laughs> and which I thought was funny, you know, funny in and of itself. And then like, yeah, it totally doesn't work that way. We don't go forward in a. We just get an update. Of course, we know with our computers that our updates don't always make things better. Although I'm a Mac person, so our updates do always make things better. But, uh, but yeah. So I was making, I was thinking like, well, it's just kind of a list of like dimensions of tshuva. And I thought, no, it's actually good to have those things in in one place and see how each of them go different on it. And I really liked the fact that that they did their reflecting in mostly in kind of a party atmosphere. The first thing actually that I noticed, it happens today as we're recording that, it, you know, it is spring and where I am actually, it's kind of cloudy, but I, I was- freezing I, cold in New York City today. <laughs> it's like in the 40s. <laughs> but I did look like when they, they're they there by themselves, all the rest of the demons are gone and they kind of, the first, uh, the opening shot was kind of sunny, not in a like too perfect pastel-y neighborhood thing, but kind of a kind of a springy day, what I think of as beginning of baseball season kind of day, which I just had this like emotional jolt of like, this is lovely. And their first arguments there about like when Chidi doesn't get on are sort of out there in that daylight. But then when they 
when they turn on the twinkle lights and they have the party and the music, I thought this is a maybe this is a way better way to do your tshuva reflecting than the high holidays, which are so somber. I realize that Central Synagogue they probably aren't as somber as they are at most places. You know, it, it's interesting. I used to work for a car in Los Angeles, as you know, and at the end of Yom Kippur, they have a disco breakfast where. Uh, it used to be that the room that they had the breakfast in had a disco ball. And I think that's how it got started. But now, even though the room no longer has a disco ball, they have a DJ and there's dancing and like people are really letting loose at the end of Yom Kippur. And I think that is sort of the the way it should be done, which is we repented. We thought really deeply about who we are, which is you could kind of think of that as the balloon scene and all the conversations that they're having. And then we have this kind of catharsis, which comes out in the party. And only after they've had these sort of in this intense discussion of getting to the good place and the balloon and everything else, can they actually like really start that true work that they need to do in terms of how they relate to each other and that the party is kind of the, the thing that opens the door for them to, to really deepen their relationships. And of course, cause it's the good place. Like it's not all that earnest, right? It, it's, it's earnest, but they cut it with, like a lot of good humor. See, it seems like in a way that the beginning of, of Elul, the month before Rosh Hashanah, or maybe the first day of Rosh Hashanah, should be maybe the disco party. And maybe you could have one at the end of Yom Kippur too. But I mean, it seems like they they get loosened up, as you say, by by this place they're in, which is obviously not the beginning. They've been thinking about these things for a long time. But you know, you don't want to you don't want to wait too long before setting an environment where you can really open up. And I'm sort of, I, I am intrigued by this, yeah, by just the setting. And I've always, you know, I've been feeling for a long time, like there's something about just the environment they're in for rituals that is, that is really good for, for making, like you need, you need the, the direction and the ethical ideas and the practices, but you need an environment that is in some way kind of uplifting. And I think even fun. And they, they seem to be really good at that, doing that. I was just going to say, when I lived in LA, I had a friend who was a set decorator for different shows. I think she was, I can't remember what she was working on at the time, but this idea, right, that it's someone's job actually to create that environment that you're talking about and to pick out the twinkle lights and to make sure that, you know, the tables are in exactly the right place and, and all of the things that they give Michael in that box of random junk that they that they they give him now that he can be an honorary human looks exactly right, right? To evoke all the things that you're that you're talking about and just how much how much behind the scenes there is to getting to the magic of what we see when we watch the show. You know, the, I was going to say this is a really good Tahani episode and Tahani and Michael are the design people within the universe of the show. Michael, although he, I think he's an architect, which means he kind of has the structure of things, but he, right, it takes him 802 times to figure out which look, you know, which, whether it's going to be yogurt or kebabs, you know, that are going to be the, the theme. And Tahani has a very strong idea of atmosphere. And I love her line about her her, her good place as uh, separate houses and she'll have a tasteful moat. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I like her line about her bad place is going to be the Alps, but in the off season. The off season yes. It'll be in autumn, where it's probably really beautiful in the Alps in autumn. Yeah. I think this is my Tahani inflection point episode where I think I really started to, the first time around, to see her with more nuance. When she goes through the balloon detector the first time and she is admitted, she has this great tilt of the head, you know, and she says, you know, well, you know, sure. It's like, obviously I was going to get in. <laughs> and, and of course, she's the one who unlocks the whole thing. And, and it actually made me think about this chuva idea where why you can't just 
give up who you are. Like first she says, you, you can't solve every problem by saying, I want to speak to the manager. But it's actually her idea to go. She's the one who has the idea. Turns out you can. Yeah, it turns out you can. I mean, it requires Eleanor. Eleanor makes fun of her. You know, speak piddly, piddly, <laughs> whatever she says. And then speak to the manager. And then, and then she and Tahani and Michael put this together, which is so cool. Yeah, I think it's, it is a great Tahani episode because you get both that essence of who she truly is, which is she's going to be the person who talks, asked to speak to the manager, but she also has this real moment of self-reflection that I don't think we've seen much from her to this point where she says that I have to stop relying on other people for my son to fix this for me, but me, right? And, and in fact, in order to get to the manager, Tahani and all of them are going to have to do a lot to get there. It's not just uh, I have to speak to the manager and the manager shows up. They have to really commit to the plan of speaking to the manager. And so I think this is a, of this as a turning point for her where she just realizes she needs to rely on herself, that it can't only be that other people are fixing things for her and smoothing the path for her. And I think it also reminds us that people are more than what they seem on the surface. That if you look at Tahani, you think, oh, she has such an easy life and she has all this money and wealth and fame and and she does so much in the world. And then once you sort of get to know her, you realize that she's very insecure, that she doesn't necessarily know how to fix her own problems, that she has all of that drama with her parents and her sister. She has a lot of layers under there that you might miss if you you just kind of dismissed her as a spoiled rich person. The freshness of her self-insight is really interesting too. Her end of her little soliloquy there with Jason, where where her, you know, it's it's it was enough. It was enough in a way that she would have said, "Stop relying on others for my sense of self-worth." But then she says, "In our relationship, there is no manager," which is a great. I put that in like one of my top ten lines up there with one of my favorite Eleanor lines, which is, uh, "People are like nature's apps." From earlier, I think from the the opening episode of the season and that whole conversation was just so wonderful too. Jason, who, you know, she's like, please don't, uh, please don't basically like do your thing where you talk about some crazy Jacksonville story that's somehow going to apply. And he keeps powering through with the story about my mom was a manager at a pet store and they're going to rob it. He was robbing it and then they try. And then he ends it with, it was all a dream. (laughs) It's just out of nowhere. He's such he's such a great character because he he could be such a caricature that you wouldn't really relate to him necessarily. And I think for me, he's one of the least relatable characters in Uh the series. But he does have things that you can relate to. I think, you know, his discussion of frozen yogurt and that it hurts his stomach and (laughs) and all of that. Like, I actually think everyone can relate to that. We all do things that we know we shouldn't. We eat things or, or other things in the world, right? We all do things that we that are really not good for us. And we know it and we repeat them over and over again because either because we like the frozen yogurt or because we can't figure out how to get out of the cycle. And so there's a little bit of Jason in us, even if he doesn't feel particularly relatable. It's interesting. I So many, this season particularly, so many of our co-hosts and, and even I have really kind of taken to Jason a little more because of this kind of pure streak that seems to run through his goofiness. Even that, that final line, like it was all a dream. Dream is a big word for him, like a meaningful word. But I did notice as he was talking about the his love of frozen yogurt that of all the people sitting with, his was piled up with the most toppings. I don't think it was the yogurt so much as the toppings that were probably ruining him. I noticed he had gummy worms on his frozen yogurt and my kids love 
gummy bears in their yeah. frozen yogurt. And I think it's disgusting. Like the textures are all wrong. How could you eat such a thing? Like you don't want to chew that much for things that go in, you know, in ice cream or frozen yogurt. So anyway, that's an aside, but yeah, I did notice that. And, you know, and even as he is ignoring Tahani's, you know, please don't say anything to me. She, she thanks him. She says, thank you, Jason, for making this a little easier. And like, she somehow, I think it's a really big, big opening up for her. And uh, Agreed. she's the one who says to Eleanor, our unofficial leader, what she describes her, you know, our diminutive, like a scrappy auto mechanic. <laughs> and then Eleanor says, oh, I think that's the nicest thing you ever said about me. So do you want to take us in a particular direction to, to dive a little deeper here? So, you know, I was thinking about a very famous text that I thought would just kept kind of like jumping out at me as, as I watched this episode, the saying of Hillel, who says, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? That to get to where they are, they have to embody and to get actually in the next phase where they're going off to the bad place um, to try to find the judge, they have to embody all of those. And I think part of what's happening in their discussions is coming to the realization of creating the balance between being for themselves and being for other people. That the whole discussion with Chidi about which version of him is the best. And then Eleanor says, but you were our teacher, right? You are the one actually, like you were so much for us, Chidi, that it doesn't matter so much which version of you was the best because you had such an impact on us. And then he says one of my favorite lines, not funny, haha, but he says that maybe his version of being his best self is about how he impacts the world around him, that, that he gets out of his own head and stops thinking about which version of Chidi is the best if and which how much is about him and really thinks starts to think about how am I impacting all the other people around me. And then when we get to, the, actually the whole episode really has this sense of urgency of, if not now, when, but especially at the end when they're boarding the train, right? Sean sends that text message about turning people into soup or whatever. <laughs> uh, that was great. And and they realize like now is the moment that they have to really seize the moment and go forward and they can't really give up. And, and they, they, but I think you're right that they can only come to that realization after they have this, dis the discussions that they have at the party after Tahani realizes that she has relying on everyone else to to do the things that she's really supposed to do. And once Michael realizes that telling the truth is is an important part of what it means to be human, that that then they can actually move on and, and feel the urgency of the moment. So I like what you said about Chidi, who I think this is a big change in him, that statement about that you quoted. And he says, not just my own egocentric self-image, because he's been so much about like, Kantian, I can't lie. I can't run over these people with a with a trolley. Like that's the the essence. And yet he is a teacher. So I think you've really you've captured that sense of his outward that he doesn't have language for until now, when when Eleanor gives it to him. But I'm wondering if you're seeing any of the first part of it, the if I'm not for myself part. Do you think that shows up as a positive in any in anybody there? I actually think it shows up in Michael that he spends a lot of time trying to sort of cover his ass. I don't know if we're allowed to say that on this podcast. <laughs> What's ash? I think ash is the word. Yeah. <laughs> cover and really make it seem like, oh, I can do this all myself and I'm going to do it and I'm going to prevent myself from getting um, tortured for eternity or whatever the, and turn into a marble or whatever the issues are. And then part of what he realizes is that he can't only be for himself. He has to be for the humans. 
And that's part of his, I think, realization about becoming, a, he doesn't become human, but becomes an honorary human, is that he actually can't only be for himself. He can't only worry about his own eternal damnation. He has to worry about what is going to happen to the, the people around him also. And it's only when he is able to kind of admit that he's not the only one in control, you know, he's not in control of the situation at all and, and get help and get them all to rely on each other that he's able to, to join the humans as an honorary human. I don't know if that's stretching it too much, but I, no, I that's I really, know. that's what I saw in Michael in particular. I think about this Hillel teaching as on the one hand, a synthesis of the, the two focus on the self and, and on others, but giving each of them their due, that each of them has to be the most important thing at a particular time. I guess that's what makes it a paradox. And, and I think, you know, that we can see in the balloon example, which is they all have to be their own best selves. They have to figure out who, what does it mean to be the best Eleanor? So they have to work on themselves and, and improving themselves. But in order to really get to the judge and do all of the things, they actually need to be for other people too. They, they have to do both. They have to be able to do both internal reflection, but also internal work. And they have to be for the team and support the team and make some sacrifices for the team. And I think Eleanor in particular embodies this so much over the course of the series, which is that she starts out only being for herself. She's only for, for you know selling her drugs and doing all of her things that she does. And then she starts to realize that she needs the other half too. She needs to be for other people. And so she starts out learning ethics because she thinks it will get her to the good place. But she starts to realize that like, it's, it's a team, getting to the good place is a team sport. One of the things I think that I don't like as much about season two compared to one and three is that the actual trajectory of people's growth, except for Michael, isn't really all that clear. In the first season, and I think you and I talked about this, Eleanor really like works hard at like, okay, if I have to become better, what do I have to do to do that? And then she experiences all the pitfalls if my motivations aren't right and all, all the ways that she can fall down. But I feel like in this season, I don't know that we see her doing a lot of things that were better than who she was before. Like she sort of arrives pretty early. But then I was thinking well, that- Well, I think yeah. her, her transformation happens at a different rate, perhaps, than other people in the series. But- you know, look at her kind of talking Chidi off a ledge during the balloon discussion. And also think about how much she gives up her love of Chidi. She's willing to give up that that love to get them all to the good place. She's the one who knows that they had this relationship and she's the one who knows that they were in love. And, and she doesn't necessarily share it or push it or force Chidi into a relationship because that's what she wants. She sort of allows the good of the community to to come first. It seems like what catalyzes this possibility of their initially with the balloon and eventually with their plan to get to the portal isn't really so much them that they've that they that any of them or even all of them has achieved some like level of growth, but just circumstances force them to get there. So I think you're right that it's not this, this like absolute finish line. And maybe that was actually the idea. I think Michael's if it was Michael's idea to the fake balloon with the fake ancient manuscripts, if, if they were fake, was maybe the best self is a nice way to say that. Like, it's not just against an absolute scale, but who you've been. And and then I like that when he talks about when they're sort of sorting out this, I've been so many versions of myself in 
in the afterlife that I think was it part of this oh yeah so so Michael's thing about reboot 119 which is a lot of reboots ago yeah. that uh, that was the one with the kebab restaurants and the pet lizard poop <laughs> which I can relate to because we this year have a new pet lizard in our home and there's there's a lot of poop <laughs> and uh, and Michael points out that her oh that's his kissing is gross <laughs> kissing which gross kissing is gross <laughs> It's smashing your food holes together. That's not what it's for. <laughs> but he points to this where where not so much that they ended up in bed at Mindy St. Clair's professing their love, but that she gave him a tissue, gave Chidi a tissue before he sneezed. And that's what made him fall for you, he says. And so even though that was many, many boots ago, that sort of reoriented me around how to look at this episode where, as you say, it's not plot heavy but one of the maybe you know this i feel like one of the the lawrence's lawrence kushner or lawrence hoffman who i sometimes get confused these great spiritual teachers of ours said that the only thing we can control is the past and we certainly can't control the future and the present is happening but the past we control by the way we look back on it which i thought was a really interesting insight and that maybe that is the definition of tshuva going back to to maimonides the famous funniest rabbi in all of jewish history not that when he said that it's about going back to previous situation and acting differently part of the going back the tshuva is to just look back on it and to view yourself uh, differently going forward because of something it may not be the exact situation there may not be a a sneeze moment, a tissue to to get, or something like that. They're 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 in this weird interlude now, where they can't really do any chuva other than by talking about what's happened. Like they're all talking about the past. They're talking about Tahani and Jason's uh, relationships from the past and the past reboots. But it can be very profound to take the time out to do that, and that really does, in a way, bring the past back in a way that helps them become maybe better. It seems like. That's a really interesting way to think about it, especially since they have access to the past in the way that most of us don't. They can literally watch videos and some in every detail with their Janet of the past. And most of us have a much hazier version of the past where we everybody has their own facts about what actually happened. <laughs> There's this really great book called Some. I read this many times and I'll, I'll put it in the notes. It is many different versions of the afterlife as like these little two-page imaginings. And one of them is basically all of ourselves from different times of our lives run into each other. So I was thinking about that when they're just talking about the 802 versions, not counting the ones on earth, I guess. That really question of who is the real me that's going to get judged or that I, obviously it's at the moment, it's about how they look at themselves. So going back to your Hillel teaching, uh, do you see it applying at all to Jason? You know, he's such an interesting character because he's both completely selfish and completely selfless kind of in the same breath. He'll do almost anything for anyone, mostly because he doesn't think about the consequences or <laughs> have any idea like how to do anything, you know, but also he's so wrapped up in his own world when he thinks about his own bad place. And he's like, and I would be at a, I forget which band, but I would be at a concert and I would be waiting for the beat drop <laughs> and it would never come. And that's his personal version of hell. And his personal version of heaven is, you know, more, frozen yogurt. But I think Jason is, is the kind of, of character who maybe more than the other ones has a bit, has, has a bit of balance in his life of like, you know, I'm going to do things for me. Cause like, it feels fun in the moment, right? Like I'm going to eat my frozen yogurt. Cause that 
feels fun in the moment, but also that conversation that he has with Tahani and his and his love of Janet and his attempts to do things for both of them to help them and help make them better people. Though Janet would say, not a person, right? Not a girl, <laughs> not a robot. I do think he has a little bit of that. And he definitely has, if not now, when, because he just does stuff without, <laughs> without thinking about it. <laughs> that is great. Oh my God. That that is great. Yeah. He's I don't know if that's exactly what Hillel had in mind of like, just, you know, I don't, I don't think most of the time we would interpret if not now when as do whatever you want, no matter the consequences. But that I think is a lot of it's, it's at least some of Jason's personality. Yeah, that is great. As I say, you have a different take on Jason than a lot of us co-hosts have been expressing recently. Uh, because I, I was going to say, that, I mean, he doesn't have enough of a concept, I guess, of himself to even know what's good for him in that sense. You know, I, I was also thinking about this, again, teaching, which gives me a lot of trouble back to Maimonides of there's repentance, tshuva, when you can do something when it's actionable. And then tacked onto that is this idea of tshuva, a moment before you die, which is really the way you are. And Maimonides says that you can do tshuva even in a situation where you really can't do anything about your future or the future actions you're going to take, and that's still considered to be significant. And I was thinking about that during this moment where they really are are there saying, this is our last night together. And, you know, even when they have this this long shot move that they come up with, I mean, they, they, they really seem to be at a kind of peace. And it means something to them to express these things. Like, we ought to talk about these things, our relationships, and be honest. Even though there's no, there, there really is selfless, there's no, there's no payoff for them. Their torture is not going to be any better for their honesty in this particular moment. In a way that makes it the most pure. They can't. They don't. They don't expect any reward or better outcome for this. They don't expect any reward or better outcome. But I think you could also ask yourself whether they could do what they did in terms of, you know, spoiler alert, right? Getting through the bad place and everything that they did without forming these kinds of relationships. They have to feel responsible for one another, or they won't make it. And so, yes, there's no tangible reward for any of this stuff necessarily, or at least no one-to-one reward. But I do think it is the fact that they can have these conversations and, and be so honest and open with each other that, and, and do chuva and, and try and fail and try to do better. That actually is, is what propels the whole series. It's what gets them to the good place. You know, God willing, one day. And I guess we know that even though this looks like the final move, we obviously know that it's not, both because we've watched the rest of the series, but also because how how could it be? <laughs> this, this, would, this wouldn't be a good That would be a weird ending. And then they were on the train in the end. <laughs> I was thinking about this thing of weighing the soul, and you brought it back to the idea of measuring our deeds on a scale. We are recording this, even though it won't be released till after, during Pesach, during Passover. And there is this famous thing in ancient Egypt where when someone dies, their heart is weighed on a scale. And I guess the idea being if your heart is like in, in, in our Torah, having a heavy heart, Pharaoh's heart is weighted down, which makes him bad. But I have this feeling that a full heart somehow must be must be good in some sense. But I was thinking about that image, too, and where this idea of how powerful this idea of weighing is. I guess the other thing that was kind of subtle about this episode is that that gets sort of undone. Like the, the balloon thing seems like so cool. And then to learn that it like there's so many misdirections in this episode about what would be the right way forward. And they really actually do a lot of work in terms of reconceptualizing what a way forward is from here. I think one of the most interesting things actually about the balloon 
is how fast everything changes. You can be red and then Chidi and Eleanor have a chat and then they're green and then they have another chat, right? And then someone else is red. And I think we don't think about our sort of like eternal good versus bad as changing that quickly. And, and what's changing isn't actually any actions. It's really people's understanding of those actions. What does it mean to be your best self? And, and once Chidi has a new understanding of what that means, then he's able to get onto the balloon. But it's not, not like he did anything differently in those two minutes. It took him to talk to Eleanor about how he really was his best self. And then, you know, it got in Eleanor's head and then Tahani had an issue. And just the fact that it changed so dramatically in such a small period of time, I think is not how we usually think about Chuva or about, you know, what happens in terms of judgment on Yom Kippur or any of those things. We think of that as being maybe like a more subtle process or more connected to our actions rather than the framing of our actions. I, I love what you're doing here because you're giving me back to to a cheaty stomach ache, or I guess here it's I've got cheaty in my head because all these different things are true. The fork in the garbage disposal. Oh, that like was that. so great. The fork. <laughs> I am having a very big fork in the garbage disposal because I guess I think it is important for each of them to reach this understanding and framing, but they are, as you say, in this together. That sounds so trite, right? Even that too. So they throw all these things out, you know, being a teacher and not depending on others for your happiness, but your impact on others is important. They lay that stuff all out on the table. And I guess you can't set it up as a formula, you know, 3A plus 2B minus 4C, you know, and this is always what's hard for me, the conceptual, definitely much more a cheaty person on my who am I is, is, you know, once again, they don't arrive at an answer to how do you weigh each of those factors before they decide they're going to head off to the judge. All they know is that sitting here waiting for doom is bad. Waiting for doom. I think that's why your, your Hillel quote, again, is so great. Maybe that's what the if not now when is like, if you're going to wait till to figure out exactly the balance of be for me or be for others, do not try to resolve that into, a, you know, and not do something until you've got that figured out. You, you got to go try to work it out for the moment and then go. Well, what you're saying also reminds me of the famous debate about what is greater study or action. How much do you have to really understand yourself and, and understand what does it mean to be your best self and all of all of these things and how much should you just like push forward in your attempt to get to the good place? And I think maybe the message of this episode is the message of the Talmud, which is study is greater because it leads to action. Their their ability to self-reflect and to work out some of their issues with each other. And basically the whole episode is the study that leads to the action of, you know, I guess, killing, marbleizing bad Janet and then <laughs> getting on the train. I love that Michael used the paper clip for that. It was just like, it, I missed it's just that. such a... Oh, he puts the paperclip in Bad Janet's ear, and that's how he, and I think he touches her nose, and that's how he marbleizes her so that they get on the train. There's a time for sitting around and philosophizing and talking about yourself, as uh, right as she says, like, we could have met in a normal way at a philosophy conference or after my philosophy class. Um, and then there's the, you know, sometimes we just have to do it, even though we don't have maybe all of the pieces of the plan completely worked out, right? As Michael says, being human is an attempt, you're going to attempt something futile with a ton of unearned confidence and fail spectacularly. And sometimes you just have to go for it and see what happens. Yeah, I really love how you're saying that because I think the ton of unearned confidence 
I don't know if it's like unearned confidence, but sort of own, like less earned than you think. You do have to think about <laughs> if I'm not for myself, you know, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? You can't skip that part, but you can't spend too much time on that. You can't get all bogged down in trying to make sure that the balance is correct. Sometimes you just have to go for it. And, and as we see the rest of the series, they're still very flawed, even as they make their way through the process. And that's also part of being human is accepting that you're never going to get everything exactly right and trying not to let that paralyze you. That's how Chidi ended up in the bad place in the first place, which is he tried so hard to get everything right. And it, it creates a paralysis for him. I'm imagining uh, Hillel sitting there like Michael when they're on the train trying to come up with his aphorism, you know. <laughs> the real bad place was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> I, that was such a great point. <laughs> if I am only for... <laughs> I'd say maybe Mrs. Hillel was there, one of Hillel's best friends, saying, I think you've got it now, yes. If I'm, <laughs> if I'm not for myself, keep that one, an aphorism. And um, I both love these aphorisms. And, and as I say, I, I, I'm always worried that my aphorisms are going to end up being too simple. Perhaps this is like a metaphor, <laughs> bad Janet's, there's no overhead storage <laughs> on this train. <laughs> Stick your bags up your fat butts. <laughs> I, I have to say, I'm not, I, I'm not bad Janet, but I love bad Janet <laughs> so much. She's such a great character. She's so fun. Funny. And I think like she's kind of the way you just need want to act sometimes, but you know, you shouldn't because, you know, that would be that would be impolite. But sometimes you just want to be like, get away from me, you fat dink. Right. Like, I, I find her to be amazing. And as I say, I think every time I'm on this podcast, like Darcy Carden is just such an amazing actress and she pulls off both Janet and Bad Janet in such an amazing way. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I was going to say perhaps the lack of overhead storage refers to the need to not, you know, store up too many <laughs> excess thoughts about things that you can't resolve in the moment. I don't know exactly what this was about, but when they are going on the balloon and Janet is holding that like random basket of things, including a giant egg, I don't know what that was about. And that just seemed like someone was just like, here, hold this basket. Do you, I don't know if you caught that. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but it just it it was like one of these moments that it's just there's just so much there everywhere you look. In the place. <laughs> I did um, wonder because we are this is a, I thought maybe it's like an Easter basket of some sense. I mean, we're recording a couple of days after Easter, but that's just by happenstance. Well, I think my other favorite moment was when Michael has to put security <laughs> question yes. and it's like, what's the name of your pet? And he says, Cars off the ten-headed dog spider. Great moment, right? Even even demons have to have security questions, and then you know auto correct on on Sean and the soup. They they do such a good job of finding things that regular human people can relate to, and just making them so much and a beautifully integrated part of the show. What did you think of everybody's uh, bad places? Eleanor always be camping. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, those didn't, as I say, other than the Alps during uh, off season, <laughs> they didn't. They didn't especially land on me as much as some of the other stuff. What else? You know, one, one thing that was interesting about that, there were a number of actually cheaty moments in this episode where everybody else is being like a little funny, like Eleanor in the camping, and Cheaty says, "Well, I just like can make anything into my personal hell," which is a very self-reflective way of of looking at things and, and his discussion about the fork in the garbage disposal and about how his mind is always grinding and 
coming up with all of the various terrible things that can happen to you, that those moments where other people around him are sort of being a little like humorous. And he's really, it's, it's almost as if like light bulbs are going off for him. And he's like, oh my God, this, oh my God, that, oh my God, this one, this thing, that thing. And he's really starting to notice things about himself, even in these more humorous moments, right? When he says his good place is unlimited libraries with his heroes walking around. And then he says, I hope soulmates are real. You see this real soft side of Chidi, this side of him where everybody else is like, I want a big house and I want frozen yogurt and I want a drink. You know, I want a beach with drinks. And he and he's really reflecting. It's very Chidi. Yeah, and I really like that each of them were given a chance to voice in a way. I, at first, I thought of them as each a theory of what the good place should be, but then realizing that that each of them had a piece of it, and or that maybe that's unique, just each for them, and there's not one answer. Even that there's there's not even one way of doing chuva. Each of them reflected in kind of a different, maybe not each of them, I wouldn't call Jason reflective, but they, those who did reflect, <laughs> they did it at, they were made, you know, either X number of steps for one and different number for another, but, but it was appropriate for each of them. And, and as you said, each of them has their own way of balancing self, self-ish or self, self-towardness and, and toward others-ness. And, and it's not a formula. They each have to, to do that. You know, I think if we're going to, since we're reaching the end, I will just say, I didn't write down who said it, but somebody says the greatest thing that humans can do is try your best. When they were discussing making Michael, I think, an honorary human. And I just thought that that was such a great line and such a great encapsulation of what the series is about, which is how can we figure out what does it mean to try your best? And sometimes you do the right thing and sometimes you do the wrong thing. And being human is really an acknowledgement of those things. And trying to try your best. You you are once again pushing on that thing that I find both so true and hardest to integrate, both to myself, figuring out what my best really is, but also figuring out how to look at other people and be accepting of what their best is when I have an idea of what that best could be, either universally or for that person. Maybe it's more that I think about that universally. I don't think when it's actual people that I know, I don't think I judge, you know, oh, your sense of your best isn't right. I don't do that. But I think when I look out at the world, I am troubled by people who, especially prominent people, I guess, who I feel like aren't doing what I think could be their best. How can I know, you know? I guess I would like to say I don't tell, think about that, but I definitely do. Like, I think about that with my kids all the time, which is like, I want you to do your best. And that for you might be different than it is for your brother or your sister or whoever else. But it's actually very important to me that my kids try their best, whether it be homework or sports or art or anything that they're doing. I actually do sometimes articulate when I don't think that they have tried their best. I think it's not as much something I do for friends of mine, right? To say like, oh, you didn't really seem to have tried your best, but for my own kids and also sometimes for my students to say, I actually think you can do better than what you did here. Than this work that you provided, I actually, I think you can do better and not only about homework, but sometimes with kids, especially, you know, with preteens and teenagers, I think I can say to them, I know you're better than this. You did X, Y, Z thing. And I know that you're a better person and I know you can try to be better. And I do think that's sometimes something people need to hear from their parents or their teachers 
or their rabbi that that they can be better than than what they are and that you see it in them. There's no point in telling someone that they could be better if you don't think that they can be. Mm, but if mm. you think that they can be, then I there are moments, not all the time, but there are moments when you want to say to someone like, you're, you, you are better than this work you produced or this decision you made or this way that you're acting. And I do think like, that's the only thing I want from my kids as a parent is for them to try their best. They don't have to be the most brilliant people to ever walk the face of the earth, but I also don't want them to be slackers. Spoken as the wise master educator that you are, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> it is so great to do this together again. This was really fun. I really love this episode. I'm so happy I got to... This one I kind of randomly picked. I was very happy to get to do it. As they say on The Good Place, the the wand chooses the wizard. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what I always say to my bar mitzvah students, which is when they complain about how they don't like their Parsha. Their Torah reading. Yeah. I'm like, there's a reason that you got this Parsha. I don't know what it is yet, but we're going to figure it out. And we will figure out another episode to do together soon, Rebecca. Excellent. And that's another Tove episode in the books. Thank you for listening. If you're not already subscribed, hit that button on your app or connect on social media at Tove Good Place so you know when every new episode comes out. We've got show notes at tovegoodplace.com, including video from an actual Yom Kippur dance party in a synagogue. Rebecca Rosenthal is on Instagram at Rabbi Rebecca Bakes. And I'm John Spiracevet everywhere at RabbiJS3 and RabbiJohn.net. Now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.